let's turn our attention to the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel. Just a little context before we stand and reread this text. If you can recall, last week in verses uh, 44 and previous, Jesus has just done one of his most memorable of miracles. This famed feeding of the 5,000, which we dare say it was truly the feeding of some 25,000 because it said 5,000 plus women and children. There were a lot of folks that he miraculously fed. And as you read the gospel accounts, you'll note that it is at this miracle that Jesus' fame and popularity reaches its peak. It is at this miracle that the disciples get their egos filled to the brim. It is at this point where they thought they were a force that could not be stopped. Indeed, at the end of this miracle, verse 44, I dare say the disciples likely thought they were about to take over the land, that they may indeed be the inner circle around that political Messiah who is going to at last kick out all the Roman overlords and take back the land for themselves, which is why when we read in verse 45, it should shock us what Jesus' next act is. If you found Mark 6 and verse 45, stand with me and let's read together God's word. Beginning in verse 45, hear now the words of our Lord as recorded by the evangelist Mark. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. We'll come back to that strange phrase. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea... Well, they thought it was a ghost, and so they cried out. They were terrified, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help us make sense of this most familiar story. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come and by the power of your spirit speak to your people. You know how inadequate I feel, particularly this moment, to do this text justice. So I'm asking that you would use me in spite of me. And that you would pierce your people by your word. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Nothing gets our attention like affliction. You found that to be true? That's the whole secret sauce behind the 24-hour news networks. They recognize that it is pain, sorrow, suffering, drama, affliction. That's what gets your attention. There's a reason why major news stations will cut out major programming to dominate 
the or to dominate the waves with weather forecasts. I grew up in Oklahoma. You could lose all the shows you wanted to watch one night because there was a tornado warning. That's the reason why most of us have been thinking about Maui for the last few days, because of the tremendous pain that the citizens of that island are going through this moment. There's nothing that gets our attention like affliction. And have you found that to be true for you? C.S. Lewis, in a way that only he could, once remarked that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone that he uses to rouse a deaf world. There are some things I say as a preacher that they're so convicting to me that it's as if I can see the words coming out of my mouth slowly. And I'm wondering, do you even believe what you're saying, Kyler? And what I'm about to say is one of those things. If you read the Bible, one unavoidable, undeniable, but undesirable truth that you will find in almost every page is that there is no school like suffering for the Christian. There is no classroom like calamity. There is no seminar like sorrow. There is no tutelage like trials. No university like adversity for you. No education like tribulation. My friends, there's no academy like agony. There is really, truly no preparation like pain. And have you found this to be true for you? The disciples did. If you read the Bible, the disciples endlessly make this point that God tends to use our suffering to teach us things. Just take, for example, the apostle, the disciple James, who in James 1 and verses 2 and following says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or take, for example, Peter. Hard-headed Peter. Peter tells us in his first letter, verse 6 and 7 of the first chapter, Peter tells us, though we are grieved by these many trials, we are so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in this praise and His glory and His honor. The Apostle Paul echoes this. Though he was not an immediate disciple of Christ, he was, we dare say, the last whom Jesus encountered, though in his resurrected form. And Paul tells us in Romans 5 and verses 3 and following, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope is never going to put us to shame. The disciples taught this. Because they were taught this at the feet of the master teacher of all teachers, Jesus Christ, our Lord and yours. Time and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus take his disciples 
to school, so to speak, to bring them back down to earth and to teach them a truth that we need to grip. This is a truth that will easily go in one ear and out the other. It sounds good, it tweets good, it it preaches good, but it's terribly hard to believe. And that truth is this. Hear his simple, plain, yet profound lesson that I believe this famed story of Jesus walking on the water teaches us. Dear church, your suffering is never for nothing. Now, we're on the verge of school, and some of you English teachers in the room recognize that I just used a double negative, and that's not right. But don't, take, don't uh, have issue with me. I borrowed that language from what I believe is the best book I have ever read on suffering, and I have read a great many. This book by Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of the famed missionary Jim Elliot, she wrote a tremendous book entitled, as I said, Suffering is never for nothing. I commend that work to you. It speaks far more eloquently than I will over the next half hour on this subject. But I want you to see the lesson Jesus is going to teach us. It's as if Jesus is bringing us into a classroom, but his schoolroom is a stormy sea. Our desks are a rickety boat. The blackboard is a darkened night sky. And with every bolt of lightning that cracks across the stormy sky, it is as if the master teacher has his chalk in his hands and he is marking lesson by lesson that which we must learn. And so let's sit at his feet together and learn what I count to be five lessons in the storm that we need to grip. Five truths that we need to understand that will help us make sense of his ultimate profound lesson that your suffering is never for nothing. If you're taking notes, mark this down. The first thing I want you to note is that your storm, he planned it. He has planned it, which is admittedly a difficult truth to swallow until you read the text. Notice what Jesus does in verse 45. In verse 45, after the peak of popularity, Jesus, it says, made his disciples go. In the original language, that word made is like a mom who makes her child do the dishes. Or a father who makes his son take out the trash. It's not a mere ask. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It infers for us some authority, dare I say, some compulsion. This is what's behind the word. Jesus is, in other words, compelling or forcing his disciples to leave. They were tasting the glory of fame and popularity. And Jesus, knowing their heart, drives them away. Knowing that their hearts were hardened. And we're going to come back to that at the last verse. He drives them away. He makes them go. In other words, think about who's doing this. Do you think Jesus who knows all things, Jesus who can walk on the water, do you think he knows the weather? He knew what he was sending them to. Nevertheless, he made them go across the sea knowing a storm would come. In other words, this storm that was about to hit was not accidental. It was not incidental. It was, in truth, providential. Jesus was leading them into the storm. No less so than when I preached the 23rd Psalm and I said that Jesus, our good shepherd, leads us into the valley. So too, he has led us into the storm because he is sovereign over all the storms in your life. 
This is a truth that you've got to chew on. You've got to grip. Jesus is sovereign over everything that transpires. And there are a great many storms that can come into your life. We see a few of them in the Bible. This has been said by many a preacher. It's not original to me. But there are some storms that we could call correcting storms. These are those storms similar to Jonah who was disobeying God, and God brought him into a storm to put him back on path. It was to rouse him. It was to awaken him. And some of you have been in the throes of sin, and God has hit you like a lightning bolt. And it is that very storm that he used to correct you. And you have learned to kiss that wave that threw you upon his mercy because it did a miraculous correcting work in your life. But not all storms are correcting. And if you are in the middle of a storm right now, it does not necessarily mean you are in the throes of sin and need to be awakened by it. For some storms are what we could call protecting storms. These are storms, for example, like the Apostle Paul experienced when he was trying to go back uh, to the city of Jerusalem at the end of his ministry and the Lord re-diverted him to protect him. Or there are storms that we could describe as, well, for lack of a better word, perfecting storms. And these are the storms that I trust the Lord has brought into many, if not most, of your lives. Where He is using your present trials and circumstances as a school, so to speak, to teach you, to instruct you, to make you more like Him. And if you think... That following Jesus is a promise, a sweet assurance of smooth sailing. You're not only fooled, you've bought a malicious lie. For consider with me, if you believe in truth that a good God is going to captain the boat of your life always through smooth sailing, and He is always like the cruise ship's going to go around the storm, if you believe that to be true, this is the truth. If that's how you're operating, you will never risk your life for the sake of his name. You will never go to the nations. You will never risk your reputation by sharing your faith in your workplace. You will never in a million years do foster care. You ever tried it? There is great pain that is promised you when you pursue it. You will never risk adoption. You will never risk personal evangelism. You will not give generously. You will not serve sacrificially. Because tied up with each and every one of those distinctly Christian commands is a storm, a gathering storm coming. And so take heart, my friend. Your suffering is never for nothing. Because the present storm that is in your life this moment, it is a storm that He has planned for your good and His glory. Mark that down. Take it to heart. He has brought you to this storm. But let's continue. What's interesting about this storm, and this, is my, this might be what you're acutely feeling, is though you might admit that He's brought you to it, perhaps what's got you so angsty, what's got you so worked up, is he feels so distant from you, just like it appears in this story. He sends the men out on the boat, but Jesus doesn't get on the boat with them, does he? What does it say in verse 46? It says that after he had taken leave of them, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. I wonder how many of you feel like he is so far away from you in the midst of the storm in your present life. That you wonder, does he even see? Does he know 
Does he care? Where is he? Why would he do this? And there are three key words I want you to underscore in your Bible in verses 46 through 48. Critical, life-giving words if you can get them. Notice first, if you will, in verse 48, Jesus does a miracle that we most likely skipped over. In verse 48, it says that Jesus, who's up on a mountain, and the disciples who are out at night, John tells us it's dark. John tells us that in this story that they are two to three, maybe four miles out in the middle of the water. Jesus sees them. Now, I'm sorry. That is miraculous. No way he could have seen them ordinarily. This was pre-electricity, pre-binoculars, pre-night vision. I don't know how he could have seen them. He is up on a mountain. They are a few miles out in an ocean. It's dark. It's storming. No way he sees these disciples apart from the miraculous work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He sees them. And that is a critical word I want you to consider with me. The Lord who saw those disciples, he sees you. He knows the storm you're in. And every time the Bible says Jesus sees something, it infers for us a caring, sympathetic heart. He who sees sympathizes. Think about this with me. Every time you see the Lord look upon a people, He looks upon them with compassion. So too, our good God sees the storm you're in, and with utmost compassion, He is caring for you. He's aware of what you are going through. And if that still feels to you a little cold... Since, yeah, you care, but what are you doing? Have you forgotten that Jesus is actually doing something for you this moment? How many of you have wondered why Jesus went to heaven, ascended to the Father, and then what's he been doing? Where has he been since then? He hasn't come back. What is he doing right now? Did you know this moment the Lord is actually doing a profound ministry in your life, which we see inferred for us in verse 46, where it says he was on the mountain praying. Jesus was praying, we can infer, likely for the disciples. For almost every time we see Jesus pray in the Gospel of Mark, he's doing just this. He sees the disciples, he is praying for them on the mountain. And have you forgotten that the Bible actually teaches the same thing for us? That this very second, Jesus is praying for you? He who sees you is interceding for you? Now, I didn't make this up. The Bible says this time and again. Mark in your margin, Hebrews 7 and verse 25, which tells us Jesus, our great high priest, lives to intercede for us. Or mark down Romans 8 and verse 34, which says Jesus, this moment, is at the right hand of God interceding for you. And this ought to bring you great hope that he who planned your storm is he who is in a very real sense present in your storm. I want you to think about the best friends in your life. Are the best friends in your life merely those who have proximity? Could be true. But the truth is, you can be very near somebody and they're not really that close of a friend. They're just more near. But do any of you have somebody in your life who sees you, they may be a thousand miles away, but they know when things are happening, they're paying attention to you. It's like they can just see, they know, they know when to make the call, they know when to say the right word, and you know that you know that you know that they intercede for you, that they are praying for you. As a pastor of a very large church, there is nothing I love more, nothing that encourages my heart more, in sincerity, nothing that encourages me more than when I hear one of you tell me with specificity that you pray for me. 
What a wonderfully uniting, bonding thing when a brother or sister in Christ prays for one another. How much more our good God, our great husband, the Bible teaches, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is praying for you. So you can take heart. You're suffering. It's never for nothing because he's not only planned it, he is present in it, seeing what you're going through and interceding for you this very moment. But you're wondering, when's he going to come? Is he just going to pray and stay aloof and by God's grace, the scripture is clear that in your time of great trial, he is near to the brokenhearted and he always shows up right on time, even if it's not your time, which we see in verse 48 when it says he came, underscore that word came to them, walking on the sea. What a miraculous thing that most people uh, throughout the history of interpreting the Bible have had trouble swallowing. I've read several folks who have tried to rationalize what happened away, saying it was an optical illusion. I've, I saw one guy say that Jesus was walking on a sandbar. One liberal, when I say liberal, don't hear politics, it's what you mean by people who don't believe the Bible, a liberal theologian, saw one liberal theologian who said he was on some like floating ice cap, which is just absolutely <laughs> insane. <laughs> you ever been to the Sea of Galilee? <laughs> It's amazing how far the mind will go to rationalize away. How, it's amazing how much Romans 1 proves itself true time and again. We suppress the truth and we make up fanciful things because we don't want to believe it. He comes a walking on the water. Now, what's the point of this miracle? This is a critical truth that you need to hear. Jesus' miracle pointed to something else. It wasn't merely to just show off. His miracle was pointing to a profound truth that they would not have gotten had this not happened, which leads me to the third truth, the third lesson we can learn in the storm. He who planned it, he who is present in it, is thirdly, he who has purposed to use your storm. And I want you to see why he walked on water in the midst of the storm. What was the purpose behind this great miracle? What was he doing in this miracle. Well, notice that strange phrase, he meant to pass by them. Now, when I've read this over the last 20 some odd years I've been reading the Bible, every time I read that, I just naturally assumed it meant that he just randomly intended to just, you know, power walk past them on the water. He wasn't actually there to help. And it's like he caught his all crud. They're right there. I got to go help them. And then he goes and helps them. That's really what I thought which doesn't make any sense. I just didn't really meditate on it much. But you know, when you're preaching it, you got to think about it because I got to make sense for you people. And as I read it, you want to know what's wild? A simple lesson in interpreting the Bible that I've forgotten so many times, but it always bears true. When you don't understand something in the Bible, remember, Scripture is its own best interpreter. Always. And there are multiple times in the Bible we see this language of God passing by, which the scholars and the commentators agree with me is likely what's behind this phraseology. He passed them by. Does anybody remember from the Old Testament God passing by somebody? You remember in the famed narrative of Moses confronting Yahweh on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3? God puts him in the cleft of the rock so that he can pass by and Moses can behold his glory in the midst of terrible trials. This one is less well known, but we see this happen again in 1 Kings 19, I believe where Elijah, in the throes of trial and the storm of his prophetic ministry, encounters Yahweh, who passes by him as well. And what is likely occurring 
in this miracle is Jesus comes to them on the water so that he can, in the same vein, pass by or, in simpler terms, reveal who he is to them in a way they have not tasted and seen before. They saw him as this miraculous provider at the feeding of the 5,000. And now they beheld him in unusual resplendent glory such that as he comes to pass by, they don't see it right away. It says that they're so scared to death they think he is a phantom. That's what the word ghost means in the Greek. It's phantasma. They thought he was a ghost. They didn't think this was Jesus until Jesus makes clear what was unclear. When he says, fear not, it is I, he is literally saying, fear not, ego emi. In the Greek, it literally means I am. The same thing that Yahweh said to Moses at before that burning bush. Take off your shoes, Moses. I am who I am. Jesus in that moment is looking his disciples and like a master teacher is instructing them in the throes of their storm saying, fear not, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am. Jesus is, in other words, using this storm to teach them who he really is. And have you found this to be true, that God tends to use our greatest times of need to reveal to us who he really is? Have you found, unfortunately, that you really don't know Jesus is all you need until he's all you have? Have you found it to be true that you see him best when you need him most? Have you recognized it to be true that the darkest night produces the brightest stars, that the blackest velvet backdrop showcases the most glistening of diamonds. If you're 30 years of age or older, this analogy will land with you. Have you found it to be true that faith, like film, is developed in the dark? You found that to be true? The story leaves this anecdote out strangely, but if you go read Matthew's account of the story, It ends with Peter hopping out of the boat and walking to Jesus on the water. And he begins to sink. And in that moment, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you not believe me? He is, in other words, saying, I have brought you to the storm and I am using it for my glory and for your good. You need to trust me. He is, in other words, developing our faith. I love the testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata. You ever heard of her? She had a famed, uh, infamous, I should say, diving accident at 17 years of age, left her a quadriplegic. And she once remarked that every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have ever happened to us. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials that he sent us here. Because it is only in these storms that we are perfected, corrected, directed, oh praise God, we are protected by these very storms. So every suffering in your life, it's never for nothing because he's planned it. He's present in it. He's purposing to use it. But you may be thinking, I am about done. 
I've been in this storm far too long. I need a respite. When am I going to get a break and take heart, my friends? Fourthly, I want you to see that He has promised to end it. This storm will not last forever. You've heard me say it before. My preacher growing up always said his favorite verse in the Bible was, and it came to pass. Because one day it will pass. Your weeping may tarry for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. I want you to see Jesus in verse 51. What does he do? He gets into the boat and another miracle happens. The wind ceases and they were utterly astounded. He was fulfilling a promise he made in verse 45. Did you miss it? Did you notice that Jesus made them get into the boat to go to the other side? He who is sovereign over the storm, you think he is sovereign enough to say what he means and means what he says? He promised, in other words, that they were getting to the other side. The storm hits. They think they're going to sink until they recognize that with Christ we are unsinkable. And he will bring you to the other side. And this is a critical thing you've got to think with me on. One of the reasons we are so prone to fear in the storms of life is because we are, to use an optometrist's word, myopic. We can only see two feet in front of us and don't have the long view in mind. I preached at Camp Paradise a couple weeks back and I used this illustration that evidently landed with several students because I had literally dozens remark to me about it. Many of us function like this. You've got an iPhone. You've used one of those smartphones before that takes pictures. If I were to pull out my phone right now and take a picture of you find folks right up front, here's what would happen. You folks up front would be in focus. And the rest of you would be a relative blur. And that is like how most of us are. We're looking two feet in front of us. We're only seeing the immediate trial right before us. And everything in the distance is blurry. We, we know heaven's behind the bend. We know that he's going to end the storm, but we're not seeing it. We're not focused on it. We're focused two feet in front of us. But what happens if I take that phone and I change my focus from the front row to the back row? Two miraculous things happen. Not only is the back now in focus, but the front is no longer in focus. And by analogy, if you can get your eyes up and start focusing on the horizon, you can start living in light of eternity, you can get heaven, so to speak, on your mind, guess what will happen? The things of this world, as the song says, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. If you can fix your eyes on the horizon, all the immediate present trials of your storm will start to blur it will lose its focus and you will be fixated on what's to come. And so remember, your suffering really is never for nothing because he's planned it, he's present in it, he's purposed to use it, and he has promised to end it. So get your eyes up and keep your eyes on the horizon and take heart. That storm your end will end, will one day end. But I would be remiss if we closed our Bible and did not give you one fifth and final lesson that we learn at the feet of our Lord in this text, which we find in verse 52. Fifth and finally, I want you to note that he is going to be patient to you through the storm. For notice why Jesus did this miracle. It says in verse 52, it's because they did not understand his last miracle, the loaves. They had a hardened heart. They didn't understand that satisfying miracle of the, of the loaves. So God brought them a stormy miracle like a megaphone to wake them up, to rouse them, to unstop their deaf ears, to hear at last who he is. And I want you to see 
that the patience Jesus had towards the hardened disciples who were just dense. Like so many of us, by the way, it's a good principle. If you ever read the Bible and you start pitying the sin, you're, in, you're on a bad footing. You're like the Pharisees who are walking around thanking the Lord that you're not like these other people. We ought to always encounter sin in the Bible and beat our chests like the publican and say, woe is me, I am a sinner. I see myself in the disciples time and again. I too so often have a hardened heart and praise God. Let me borrow from that famous, most famous of all sermons. You've heard Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We can also say with full assurance of faith that we are sinners in the hands of a patient God. For ours is a God who is patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And his perfect patience demonstrated towards these disciples in the throes of their unbelief. It is the same patience he has demonstrated towards you in the midst of your storms. And so I pray if you have not heard anything I've heard this Lord's day, you will at least lend me your ear in these final moments. Would you hear that God is patient towards you? He has been so perfectly patient towards you. And there is no way he has demonstrated his perfect patience more clearly than in the person and work of Jesus Christ who was crucified so that you would not have to be. For the scripture teaches us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are hardened in heart by nature. We are resistant to God. We are worse than the disciples. We spurn the work of our maker. But God in his perfect patience has not condemned you for your sin. He has not stricken you for your sin. He has not judged you for your sin. Rather, inexplicably, miraculously, He has done all those things to Jesus, His Son, who was stricken so that you would not have to be, who was condemned so that you would not have to be, who was crucified so that you would not have to die for your sin. And the Scripture's promise is in His ever-loving patience. He is calling you this moment, this hour, if you would simply recognize what He has done from you, turn from your sins and believe Him, you will receive the miraculous gift of eternal life. And so this day, some of you are in the throes of a storm. And it may be this very storm the Lord is using like a megaphone to rouse you from your sleep, to awaken you to hear what I have proclaimed by a mere microphone. Oh, would you hear this day? He is sovereign over your storm. Your storm, your suffering, it is never for nothing. He's planned it. He is present in it, though it may not feel like it. He is purposing to use it to show you who He is. He has promised to end it. And He is going to be patient to you through it. And if you know this already, and I trust a great many of you in this room do, here is my final word to you. Like it or not, you and I have been enrolled in a school of suffering. And I must tell you and must preach to myself that this is a school from which you will never graduate. At least until that day comes when we will all be robed in white in that great final commencement as as Revelation 7 and verse 9 teaches us when we will stand before our Maker. So until that day comes, as Charles Spurgeon famously said, learn to kiss the waves that throw you upon the rock of your salvation. Resolve this day to learn all that you can 
from your master teacher, Jesus Christ himself, as he communicates this immortal lesson that we must all learn. Oh God, help me to believe that my suffering is never for nothing. Why don't you join me as we pray? And with your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, perhaps you must confess that you have closed your ears Like the rebellious student of old, you are not listening to your Lord who is with utmost patience teaching you through your storm. And so I pray this day that you would sense the conviction of the Spirit and respond accordingly. We're going to sing in a moment, and as we do, it might be an opportunity for you to come down here and pray. I and the other pastors will be down here. We'd love to pray with you. Come find us. We're down here. We would love to pray with you. Maybe you would like to just symbolically come down here and pray at the front as a sign of your utmost contrition, of your desire for God to reorient your mind and heart around this great lesson that your suffering is never for nothing. But if you don't know this, Lord, you have not tasted His perfect patience. The call to you this day is to come and receive it, believe it, and taste a new life, a new perspective. Oh, I pray that we would get our eyes up and see heaven on the horizon, that the storm we're in, He is promised to end it. Father in heaven, I need Your Spirit to come and seal this to the souls of all who heard me, to my own soul. I feel like I don't even believe half of what I said. And so move in my heart to receive it by faith. And each who can hear me, oh, I pray that we would know that we know that we know that we know that our suffering is indeed never, ever for nothing. Move now, I pray. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Would you stand?